tuned into Energy Voices on CGSW 90.9 FM. On this month's episode of Energy Voices, we're going to spend time discussing the electricity system and the complexities of both the current system, the future of utilities, and some really fascinating examples of students and youth making an impact on the electricity system today. As always, we encourage you to join the conversation using hashtag Energy Voices on Facebook and on Twitter. I want to start off tonight's show with a personal story that I experienced on just the sheer impact and power of the electricity system and on access to power globally. In 2012, I had the privilege of traveling through rural India, and I was able to attend a village where they had just implemented a project to install five solar panels that charged 50 solar lanterns for this village. And so this was the first time that this village had had consistent access to lighting through these solar lanterns. And I had the privilege of asking uh, the village elders uh, what this meant to them. And when they were explaining the fact that as a farming community, they spent a lot of time doing irrigation late at night. And so they said that the number one benefit that had come to them uh, from now having access to these solar powers that were charging these lanterns was the fact that the young men that would go out to do irrigation late at night could now see the snakes that were in uh, in the fields, and so their young men were no longer dying from poisonous snake bites. And for me, this really shocked me that there was such a direct correlation between having access to light and no longer dying. And I think that it's something that we often overlook in developed worlds, just the sheer impact and power of having consistent access to electricity. And so this month, what we're going to do is to really deep dive into understanding the electricity system and the complexities that come with us. So without further ado, I'm excited to welcome uh, Don Wharton, who's the Vice President of Government Relations from Transalta, who's going to do a really good overview of the entire electricity system for us. So welcome, Don. So first up on our discussion about electricity, we have Don Wharton, who's the VP of Government Relations from Transalta. So Don, before we kick off uh, with some questions, I just wanted you to give us a few sentences on who you are and, and where you work and what your role in with that company is. Sure, Sean. So I, at Transalta Corporation, I look after both our government and our environment policy work with governments. And so really quite intensive uh, work with the people who actually typically set the regulations for electricity in, in, in Alberta. Although Transalta itself is a uh, international corporation, we operate in seven provinces in Canada, seven U.S. states, and Western Australia. So we actually work in uh, largely competitive deregulated electricity markets in those jurisdictions have a fairly broad view and we're Canada's largest investor-owned electricity company. So we have a broad portfolio of coal, natural gas, wind, hydro. In fact, we're Canada's largest wind energy generator uh, as well. So pretty broad and diverse portfolio of fuels that we operate. That's, that's my company. Perfect. So I want to dive right in. Um, what is it about electricity as an energy source that makes it unique in your opinion? Well, electricity is funny, right? If it's funny because it, it actually, you can't store it. You can't transport it even great distances as we do with other fuels, oil and gas, petroleum products. Uh, even nuclear is a, is a global type fuel, but electricity is different. Right? First of all, because you can't store it, 
It means that electricity systems are designed to, to have to meet the peak demand at any point in time, whether it's in Christmas Day when you're cooking the turkey dinner and it's minus 30 degrees outside, or in the middle of summer where air conditioning is you know, the, at its peak. And that means that typically, and 99.9% .9 of the time, the electricity system is actually over-designed, but everything has to be built for that peak highest use, right? So that's a, a bit of an oddity with respect to electricity. And the other thing is the transportation element, which is really means that electricity systems are regional in nature. There's not a, there's not a global electricity market, but a whole bunch of electricity markets and jurisdictions and ways in which electricity is generated in Canada, the US, and around the globe. And so that's, a, that's an interesting element that really affects how electricity, the electricity industry operates. And I guess maybe the final point, Sean, to your question is that electricity is often a state-owned enterprise, right? And it's because of the criticality of electricity to economies, but in most places in the world, electricity is owned by the state or operated by state entities. And even in places like Canada, we have what are called crown corporations that many in many provinces operate the electricity system. It's a little different here in Alberta, but but that's the majority of, of uh, you know operations of utility systems around the world. So, so I think those things are characteristics that make it relatively unique, right, compared to other energy sources. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think that such a critical piece of the global energy system uh, that is electricity is basically the only part of the energy system that's not a traded commodity. Yeah. Um, so I want to, one of the things that really interested me about having you and, and TransAlta represented here is that you guys have sort of fingers in all the different pies. And I want to uh, for just sort of start the conversation more from an educational perspective and to understand what are the pros and cons of each different type of electricity, because uh, it's something that at the end of the day, what we want are the electrons that come out and, and power our iPhones and power our ovens and our toasters and that sort of thing. And so I just wanted to get a sense from you um, going through the different forms that, that and, and fuels and, and inputs that create electricity. What are the pros and what are the cons that we should be thinking about when we're making energy systems decisions? So um, the, I want to start off with the global dominant source of uh, power generation, which is coal. So what do you think are the, the positives and what do you think are the negatives? Yeah, so... Um, you're, you're quite right, by the way, that that the ultimate commodity electricity is is the is ultimately uh, you know fuel independent. It, it electron is an electron is an electron, right? So the questions about electricity in generation, in particular, really come from the fuel that we use to to generate it. And and you're right again that Transalta has a a broad range of of fuels that we have experience with. I guess maybe to start off, and I'll talk about coal in a second, but to start off, I really believe that, that diversity in the fuel mix of generation, whether it's a province or a state or a country, is actually quite an important characteristic. So we'll talk about fuels, but, but I think behind that is the idea that if, 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 if a utility or a country sinks all its efforts into a single fuel, then that's highly risky, right? And so it is actually a good thing, like many other things, to have diversity in your electricity fuel mix as well as, say, your investment portfolio, right? So anyway, let me talk. get back to your question on, on coal. Uh, clearly, coal is right now the dominant fuel mix in electricity worldwide. It may surprise some, but coal is about 43% of the electricity generation uh, in the world, right? And, and it varies from country to country. It's, uh, it's actually... 
uh, about 48% in North America right now on average. Canada's different. Canada's about 18 or 19% coal-fired. So, you know, quite a quite a, a difference between even Canada and the United States. But w- w- what makes coal interesting for an electricity fuel is that we we have lots of it, right? To give you an example, we have uh, over twice the energy content in coal in Canada than we have in the oil sands combined, right? So the, the energy component of coal is huge. It's it, We know where it is. It's easy to, to, to extract. Uh, it's relatively simple to, to uh, use to generate electricity. Essentially, it's just boiling water, right, through, through the burning of coal. Um, and it's, you know, it's a well-known mature technology that's existed for 100 years, right? So, so that's so the, sort of stability and reliability are, are major benefits of, for sure, of coal right? as a fuel source. Exactly. And yeah. coal typically is used to build large uh, utility scale or grid scale generation, not small things. It doesn't work well for small generation, but for baseload, what we call baseload power supply, right? We're the underpinning of all electricity. Coal is... is it's pretty hard to beat from a generation stability point of view, to, to your point. Of course, there are, um, th- there are uh, I guess, downsides to coal, and the most obvious one is around the environmental impact, which is increasingly of concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, coal certainly has a high carbon footprint. Uh, it also has you know, other pollutants that come along with its combustion, NOx and SO2. Uh, and those things are, in, you know, in certain areas, uh, increasingly of concern because of air quality issues, right? So that's a that's a, a, a certainly a downside with with coal. I guess the other one that one might identify with coal is that it's not it's not super efficient, right? I mean, the combustion, the thermal combustion efficiency of coal is is relatively modest, you know, in, in the order of between the time you burn it and the and put it into the transmission system, you might be talking about. 25 to 30% uh, combustion efficiency, right? So, so natural gas is, is, is higher efficiency for sure. Uh, but coal is, you know, you sort of the brute force fuel uh, for generation. And I want to use that comment to kick into to natural gas. So mm-hmm. you sort of said that the thermal efficiency of natural gas is definitely a positive. Uh, again, sort of quick overview of the positives and negatives of something like natural gas as a fuel yeah. source. Yeah, so natural gas is, is inherently a cleaner fuel, right? Carbon uh, emissions are, are about 60% less than coal, typically. Uh, it's the, the emissions of oxides of nitrogen, sulfur dioxide are minimal or small uh, compared to, to coal, for example. Easily transportable in over long distances, right? Pipelines, uh, you know, take natural gas across the North America easily, right? So, there, and uh, today there's a, actually a, a plethora of supply in, in terms of natural gas at what we think might be low, relatively low cost for a long time. We'll see how the shale gas revolution, right, plays out. But so that's, gas has that going for it. The other thing that gas is, has is that it, you can actually build gas generation plants faster than coal. They're smaller, they're, they're more uh, high tech, if you like, uh, so you can build a, a gas plant in about three years from start to finish. Coal is more like five to, to, to seven years, right? So, so you can get gas on the, on the grid faster. Uh, it's it's uh, more scalable. You can have smaller units than you would typically with a coal-fired generation. So those are some of the, you know, both the environmental and the 
if you like, the, the, the physical and more engineering advantages that natural gas brings for generation. Mm-hmm. And can you speak to the price volatility of natural gas at all? Because uh, we can think back 10 plus years ago when natural gas was $15 and it's been down to 2 or $3 and right. it's sort of been all over the map. So can you give us a sense of, of what impact that has sort of at, at utility scale in determining if natural gas is a viable source in the future or not? Yeah, well, it's, it's a huge issue and it's good that you raised that. I mean, price volatility, it, because with natural gas generation, it's all about the fuel, right? The cost of the fuel is your primary cost of generating. Whereas compared to coal, it's actually the price of building, the, the cost of building the facility. Coal is relatively cheap as a fuel input, right? So you're, you're quite right. And that, that was my comment earlier about the need to be diverse in fuel supply because natural gas historically has been highly volatile and we would expect it to continue to be that way, right? So today we might see that, you know, the short-term forecast is pretty rosy in terms of low gas prices, but we wouldn't bet our company on nat- just on natural gas because it easily, if it were, you know, if it were say eight to ten dollars a gigajoule compared to today of, of three to four, then in fact you'd see first of all competitive uh, coal and natural gas would be competitive with each other, uh, and secondly some natural gas plants would actually be stressed in terms of their economics at those kind of levels. Yeah. So I want to switch gears. Um, we, you sort of talked about one of the negatives of coal being the, the real deep concerns that some people have uh, and warranted um, about the environmental impact. Uh, and switching gears to to some of the renewable sources of power, so talking about um, solar and wind, and then and talking about nuclear, which is is sort of loosely thrown into the the renewables term. But uh, can you give us a sense of of the really sort of tactical level pros and cons of a renewable power, and then maybe touch on nuclear after? Yeah. So renewable power, uh, from our perspective, right, has really come into its own in the last, I would say, decade, and and looks to continue to be. Uh, increasingly have, have inroads into the electricity generation mix. And that's largely because of the, the maturing and the development of technology around renewables. So wind's a perfect example, right? I mean, we're big in wind and, and we purchased into to the wind business about 15 years ago, but wind was really struggling to be competitive at that time. And because of scale improvements, because of technology improvements, efficiency and reliability, now wind can compete on its own, right, freely with other larger forms of like natural gas and coal. So that's been a development that we've seen. We think solar is kind of where wind was 15 years ago and is moving in the same direction. Maybe it'll be faster. But but the technological advances are really putting solar, I think, on the map in terms of competing. The the you know, small hydro is in the same boat. The, the only challenge that we see with, with, the, with renewable fuels is their intermittency, right? The, the, their, their, their challenge, if you like, to be able to supply 24-7 full-blown generation, right, that, that they're capable of because the sun doesn't shine all the time and the wind doesn't blow all the time. And so that's, that's something that we're, we're dealing with. Uh, but it's still a challenge. And so what it means is you can't today build your entire electricity system on renewables and hope that that's going to to provide you with reliable 24-7, 365 power, right? And even large-scale hydro in places like Quebec and, and British Columbia, which are largely hydro-based, boy, you have a couple of drought years in a row and, and those provinces are challenged to provide, you know, the full-blown 
supply for domestic and export use that they're currently supplying. So, so that's always, and I think always will be a challenge with renewables, but they have so many other advantages, scalability, they're small, easy to put in. We can get a wind plant, a wind farm up and operating in 18 months, right? So, so you, and you can dial up how much you want to build. If you want the 20 megawatts or 200 megawatts, you can, you know, it's just an, you multiply the small pieces and, and get the, the, the larger generation if you need to. So, so that, that's a real advantage of renewables. And so. Yeah. And, and I know it's not an area that uh, Chenselta has a huge amount to focus on, but talking about nuclear power, uh, it's something that you, I really liked your comment about that coal is, is brute force in, in that ability to provide stable baseload power. And that's actually something that nuclear power can generate, but there's sort of a whole host of concerns and safety and, and, and environmental concerns that come up about nuclear. So what is, what is your opinion on the, the pros and cons of nuclear and maybe even just a, a sentence or two on your thoughts about the future of nuclear energy? Yeah. So Sean, I, you know, I certainly won't purport to be an expert on nuclear. We don't, we don't have it. And, and but I maybe point out a couple of things. I mean, clearly there's a large societal discussion going on around the nuclear in terms of its use and safety and those kinds of things. And, and you know, I'm not sure I could add a lot to that. But let me point out a couple of things about nuclear that you might not uh, normally think or your listeners might not normally think about. Nuclear is a super high-tech technology, right? And so it, it's not just an easy decision for any jurisdiction or any company to decide to get in to nuclear generation, even if it's a good business, even if it's cost competitive, because in order to do that, you need to develop a, a, a workforce, a skill set that's that's enormously complicated, right? And and that is in short supply. Uh, remember, we just came from a, more or less a moratorium on nuclear in in Canada over, or sorry, in North America over the last 25 years. I mean, there there hasn't been nuclear plants built, right? And the, and so the skilled workforce actually has been diminished and, and to the point where it's really difficult to, to build that capacity on a, on the turn of a you know on a, on, a, on a dime and so so one of the things with nuclear is it's a big bet right if you're going in that direction uh, number one you need to, to place a big bet that you're able to actually develop that expertise to to design build and operate nuclear facilities. And that's a that's not to be taken lightly, and that's why you see very few players in the nuclear business, and a lot of governments essentially, you know, largely running them or running the companies that run them, right? So, so that's a that's a challenge. It's and it's big by its nature. It's not the small calibratable type of generation that renewables bring. Uh, so it's at the other end of the spectrum, if you like. Cool. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit uh, and talk a little bit about the scale of the electricity industry because I think it's sometimes when people think of even uh, renewable energy, you think of sort of a single array on a rooftop or you think of a single turbine. And so I want uh, I want to use an example of your Sundance facility, which is a is a very large scale um, power generation plant to, to give us a sense of the scale of the energy industry. So uh, I've got a few questions just to sort of do an overview of that facility. Um, so can you give us sort of a quick overview of what the Sundance facility is? And then I'll run through a few questions. Sure. So our, our Sundance coal-fired power plant is 2,000 megawatts in size. So actually, it makes it today the largest coal-fired power plant in Canada. Uh, so an idea of scale, if you like. There are bigger plants. There are 4,000 megawatt plants in, in the U.S. And, and in Europe. But there, you know, 2,000 megawatts is a big plant, right? So Sundance was built in, in over 10 years in six units uh, from 1970 to 1980. Uh, it is 
Uh, it is a well-performing plant. It provides the baseload electricity supply for the province of Alberta, including all the you know, development of oil and gas and oil sands and everything else. It's really the, the foundational generation piece, if you want, uh, of, of Alberta's electricity supply system. And, and uh, you know, that's, uh, that's, it employs probably um, 800 people, right? So big staff, it has a mine associated with it, a, a, you know, an open pit mine. Uh, so there's a lot of mining operations that go along with that operation. Uh, so, you know, it's, but it's all about mining the coal, bringing the coal to the plant, right? We burn about 11 million tons of coal a year. So lots of material movement, right? Lots of logistics around that, trying to do it efficiently, right? And manage the combustion process. It's, it's, it's relatively simple, but everything's huge, yeah. right? Huge boilers. I mean, our, our, uh, our plant, our building is 30 stories tall. Right, so you know, it, it, I mean, you're talking about that kind of scale. So maybe just give your listeners a, a bit of a sense of the, you know, the scale and of that particular plant. And if you were to re- try to replace that amount of generation from, say, wind or solar, right. uh, how many turbines would you need to install, or how many solar arrays would you need to install to to match that level of production? And and obviously the intermittency issue. Let's ignore that question for now. Just right. the actual. Uh, number of turbines needed to offset something like that. Yeah, so very simplistically, right? So 2,000 megawatts of power. I mean, a, a, a good sort of commercial scale wind turbine now is 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 about a megawatt in size. So you'd think, okay, well, I need 2,000 wind turbines uh, to replace 2,000 megawatts. But again, if you then you consider the intermittency of wind and, and the fact that our wind operations and most around the world run about 30% of their capacity. So you'd actually multiply that by three. So you're talking about 6,000 wind turbines, large scale megawatt scale wind turbines to replace a 2,000 megawatt baseload coal-fired power plant like Sundance. That's fascinating. That would be quite the wind field. If yeah, you had 6, yeah. <laughs> it, would, it would cover a huge amount of territory. So one of the things that people fail to understand is the challenges around storage that to your point there's windy days and not windy days and and if we can crack storage then it's something that becomes uh, sort of an underpinning of a a grid that could be powered by renewables but uh, in comparison to something like the oil and gas industry where they've got 80 million barrels of of storage capacity in Cushing, Oklahoma alone uh, what are the sort of challenges that we're facing from an electricity storage perspective and, and where do you see that industry going? Yeah so, so great question, and I would say that's the next big nut to crack, right? And it's pretty exciting time because we're starting to see some technology developments around storage. It's still small, it's still expensive, but it's actually starting to show that y- you may be able, we may be able to to store electricity in large volumes, and boy, if we get to that point, that changes the game entirely, right? So electricity becomes then on par with oil and gas as a mobile fuel, right? As a, as a dependable fuel, as a fuel that could be generated entirely by intermittent sources because you can build up reserves and banks that you can use, right? That, that's able to follow the, 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 the diurnal variability of electricity demand. I mean, it's just the, the potential for stored electricity to really play, a, you know, change the, how society uses electricity is, is amazing. And electricity could become the, the dominant fuel in the world, right, if, if you were able to crack that nut. So we're, we're still a long way from that. But, but I will tell you, I mean, storage comes in lots of forms right now, right? We, it's not just really big batteries. It's, it's, uh, 
it's hydro systems that can actually pump water and use the the, the hydraulic head of hydro for storing effectively electricity for use, you know, at, at certain periods of time. There's lots of work being done around that. There's smaller scale storage that's that's battery driven, but very different kinds of batteries than you would put in a flashlight, right? It's I mean we're talking industrial scale stuff um, that's still, in the relative sense, only a fraction of of what the generation requirements are for any particular jurisdiction, but. But I think the scalability is starting to come, and, and I, I would bet that within the next 10 years, we're going to see big breakthroughs in storage technology and a, actually potentially a big change in, in our electricity system, including the development of distributed generation on smaller scale, right, at, at community or household levels. And, and any other technologies you said that a lot of people think about storage as just being batteries, but you brought up sort of pumped hydro and, and using the gravitational force of, of hydro. Um, any other new technologies that you see as being very promising and, and having high potential to crack the nut of storage? Yeah, well, so, I mean, there's, I mean, I mentioned earlier the the, the solar uh, technology, I think, is really coming into its fore. And I don't think we've seen the the latest development in, in developments in, in solar technology uh, yet, but it could really turn the conventional, if you like, solar panel into uh, you know to dinosaur, for example. I mean, solar panels that you could print on laser printers, right, and produce at a fraction of the cost today. Uh, you know, a built-in capacity in, in building materials to generate electricity, right? Concrete or roofing materials, right, are, are things that are being looked at, and and if we can find ways to actually develop those on a scale at a cost level that that becomes competitive, and then you throw in something like storage to boot. Uh, you can imagine that, in fact, the the whole concept of centralized electricity generation and large scale transmission, you know, networks could be made redundant pretty quickly, and we'd be looking at much more distributed types of generation. And it's almost analogous to the old you know, wired phone system versus, you know, wireless now, right? And it, 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 I wouldn't be surprised if we're starting to see the the first hints of that revolution coming. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I just wanted to take a, a second to thank you for joining us on the show. We really appreciate, we touched on so many different areas on, on in the conversation, but we appreciate just your insight and, and taking time to share that with us. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. So next up on Energy Voices, I'm excited to welcome Paul Bradley from Northland Power, who's going to be discussing renewables and the role of utility scale renewable power on the grid. So, uh, Paul, first off, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we're really happy to have you here today. So to kick off, could you give us a bit of your background and, and what you do at Northland Power and, and what Northland Power as a company focuses on? Uh, sure thing, Sean, and thanks for having me on. I'm uh, very happy to, to do this. Uh, so. I'll start with the company first. Northland Power is a an independent power producer, meaning we're not a public utility. We're a privately uh, held company. We trade on the on the stock exchange, but we're not government owned. And um, our mission is to deliver uh, clean and green energy uh, and uh, in a sustainable way. And the company's about 25 years old. We have about 1,300 megawatts of power in in our operating portfolio, and a whole lot more under development. And we are spread across a number of technologies. We generate uh, using natural gas, uh, starting with cogeneration, and we do some biomass combined with natural gas. We have some natural gas peakers, 
cogens and some combined cycle plants. And of course, we're into wind and solar. And most recently, a massive project in the North Sea off the shore of the Netherlands called Gemini, which is a 600 megawatt project uh, for offshore wind, 154 megawatt turbines with a total capital cost of about 4 billion Canadian, probably a little more than that now with exchange rate. Uh, and that's been keeping me quite busy lately. So the company is uh, not huge, but it's been growing, and it's uh, kind of an interesting play on the uh, Canadian stock market. We've, uh, we've been in the news quite a lot with uh, a bunch of our growth profile. Perfect. For me personally, Sean, I'm, uh, I've been in the power and finance uh, intersection for the bulk of my career. I've been a banker. I've been the buyer of power, Fantero Power Authority, and I've been at Northland Power as their CFO for a little over three years at this point. That's probably the, the quick thumbnail here. Perfect. Thanks for the intro. And it's it's just exciting to hear some of the projects that you guys are working on that will will sort of give you a 50% boost in your in your installed capacity. So I want to use that as a segue into just sort of setting the context for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with sort of utility scale renewable power. Uh, I know a lot of times when people think of uh, renewables, they think of a solar array on on someone's cottage or on, on someone's rooftop. And uh, can you explain for us the difference between sort of micro and distributed generation and utility scale renewables and, and what the differences and challenges are between the two? Sure. Um, like a lot of things in life, it's more of a continuum than a bright line. But typically you think of the, the distributed generation, smaller scale, non-utility scale solar as something that can directly connect to what we call the distribution grid. Those are the small wires that you tend to get into your house and through your neighborhood. They're not the big massive wires that you see going overhead or, or anything sort of in the mid-level. Utility scale generation is usually of the size where you're talking about stepping up or stepping down the voltage of the power and transmitting it to load centers or to a utility so that it tends to be a larger project because it's got just a lot more capital in it. You've got things like inverters and you've got things uh, like transmission lines and substations potentially when you're building utility scale generation. So you tend to have to get into a larger size just to make some economies of scale in the utility grade uh, solar projects. And it probably drives you to buy a little bit different equipment, a little bit different uh, mindset in the construction and the project management of putting those together. But essentially, it all comes to the same conclusion, which is generating the electric power from the uh, the solar array. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's all the same electricity. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so, I want to sort of get your thoughts on on renewables and and the role that they're going to play going forward. Um, they've been lauded as one of the cornerstones of uh, a, a transformation in the energy system that could allow us to avoid some of the dire effects of global climate change. And so, I just as someone who's sort of right at the forefront of working on on major renewables projects internationally and, and on the North American market, uh, what has you optimistic about the potential of renewables? Where do you see the future of them being over the next 10 to 20 years? Well, I think there's a, there's a few things that are converging, and, and it, it's been converging over the last 10 years or so, where you've seen a number of things from just the general attitude of the populations around the world starting to understand more about sustainability and climate change and the things that we don't want to have happen. Uh, There's other convergences of the cost curves of wind and solar and other types of renewable technologies to where they aren't five and ten times more expensive than conventional power generation. And I think importantly, there's also a recognition that 
you know, everybody thinks that the renewables are the electricity generators that are subsidized when, you know, I think there's a lot more of the thinking going into who's really being subsidized here. If I can use the environment as a free dump, uh, why isn't that just as much of a subsidy as somebody who's getting something to build a wind or solar farm? So I think a lot of that is there. I think just the general because of getting into more sustainability plus the shortage of input fuels from time to time, the cost of power has been going up. Now, that doesn't always have a positive impact on society, but it does also help bridge the gap a little bit between where conventional power used to be and where renewables are. And I think the other thing, um, which is a bit of a paradox that's going on, is people, are, as they get more conscious of sustainability and start using less electricity, that actually does also um, help the environment, but it also does push power prices upward, which sounds kind of strange, but it does because our system is basically a series of fixed costs that have to be recovered somehow. And when you use less electricity, your denominator shrinks and your numerator grows a little bit. So that pushes electricity rates up. And that helps further close the gap a little bit between renewables and conventional power generation. So there's a number of forces that are converging and I think that trend is going to continue. And also the uh, tolerance and the technology and the regulatory changes that are allowing for distributed generation, i.e. you and I can, in a number of jurisdictions, put solar panels on our house and the utility will buy the net energy at either the, the current sell rate or they have a separate buy rate for it. And so there, there's, there's changing attitudes, but it's, it's like anything else. It's not going to be a bang. It's going to be sort of a process. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm glad you brought up the, the point around some of the fixed costs that exist because uh, it's something that at Student Energy, we talk a lot about the fact that if we want to transform the energy system, we need to be thinking about the decisions we're making today that will have an impact 25 and 30 years from now because basically every major uh, power generation project has a, a minimum of a 25-year uh, capital cost recovery timeframe. And so uh, it's important, I think, for people to understand that those decisions we make today will have an impact and, and the power generation that we we start next year will will still be there 25 or 30 years from now. So it's a very mm-hmm. sort of slow system to change on the whole. Well, that's right. And it's not that much different than anything else, like our roads and our transit and everything else. It's a, it's a very long cycle before you can actually see a transformation. And, I, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I hear a lot, especially from people who are new into the uh, the, the new world, the new wave of energy thinking is, oh, the dumb old utilities, and they got these stupid grids that are out there. But to your point, you know, those were decisions that were made a long time ago with a very different mindset. However, those costs are still out there and have to be recovered. And the other thing that we have to remember, too, is that most people cannot go off-grid. And that means that even people that have solar panels on their house they still rely on the grid for backup power when, you know, nighttime and when the solar panels are maybe working or there's cloud cover or what have you. And businesses and industries, even though they might build self-generation, they need that backup for when their generator needs to go out of service, for example. So it isn't a pure equation, really. And it's one of those things that if people are going to want to rely on the grid as a backup, and then I think they will for a long time to come, then it's got to be paid for 
which is uh, you know the, hard, the harsh reality of everything in our society. Someone's got to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I sort of want to use that to segue into uh, some of the roadblocks that were that renewables and utility scale renewables will face, because I know there's often sort of a, a starry-eyed approach to renewables where uh, it can sort of be seen as the, the be-all end-all solution to some of the, the global climate issues. But what are those roadblocks that are standing in the way of uh, even more significant adoption of renewable power globally? Well, it's it's really something that is is uh, uh, it's a complex answer because renewable energy, it, it, like we we're saying earlier, it isn't an industry by itself. It's the electricity industry that eventually we have to focus on, and people have a demand for power. Our society needs electricity, and there's really no good way today to build new baseload generation, meaning that generation that's got to run 24-7 and be reliable, there is no better way to do it today than natural gas. Um, I suppose I could continue the sentence on and say, and nuclear, but I, I think that ship has kind of left the uh, left the port a long time ago. And we have to figure out a way to minimize the use of that natural gas. And, and we know, well, of course, we know coal's not out there, but nobody's come up with a way yet to build power generation on a baseload basis using renewables without having a massive amount of storage capability. And to the extent that storage becomes in the fold, uh, that's going to be more of a cost question than a technology or a doability question. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And uh, I want to sort of switch gears a little bit um, just because we have uh, somebody like yourself who's the CFO of a major company and and has a lot of understanding of the economics and finance related to renewables. So um, I was wondering if you could maybe take two minutes and give us a sense of what the actual economics of renewables are. You sort of mentioned uh, that the gap is closing. It's not five or tenfold more expensive than uh, traditional generation. So if you could give us a sense of, of the economics first and then uh, sort of a day in the life of, of yourself. So a day in the life of trying to work on the financing uh, of renewables on, on a major global scale. I think that would be really interesting to our listeners. Okay. Well, there's a couple ways we could, we could take that, that question. Uh, but I think the reality is that renewables today have a tough time competing with the embedded generation cost in almost any system. And therefore, renewables are going to need some bit of subsidy or some other type of long-term contract in order to build them effectively, or it's going to take a tax subsidy like what they're doing in the U.S. That we really can't get away from in most places. There are some places on the planet where solar, at least modern-day solar, is approaching grid parity, but it's going to still be quite some time to get there. So renewable energy has to be basically thought of as something that the gap is going to close sooner or later for the reasons I talked about earlier in the conversation here, but there is going to have to be a focus on getting them done without, to your, to your prior description of getting starry-eyed about it. I mean, Ontario is a good example of that, where out of religion, we said we were just going to put up this feed-in tariff and everybody come on in and build as much as you can. Eventually, you cause grid instability if you put up too much of this intermittent energy without the ability to firm it up. So we really have to look forward to making a very sane and sound transition into having as much renewables on the system as we can afford as a society because there are economic impacts to going too far too fast. Um, and I've just got a couple more questions for you. One that I wanted to pick your brain on is uh, 
I, and to your point about that there's jurisdictions that have done this well and there's jurisdictions that have gone into this sort of too rapidly or not rapidly enough, I just wanted to get your thoughts on which jurisdictions around the world do you think have done a really intelligent job of thinking through a transition towards uh, increased renewables as part of their energy mix? Um, I think generally everybody looks to Europe as a as a place where they they kind of got the message a lot earlier than the rest of the world, and they've as the European Union they've put in some targets they've put in some teeth for those countries that don't comply with the targets, and they've also uh, over time they've they've put a scarcity value on energy they've had it there since uh, you know the end of World War Two. And people are used to paying more, and therefore they're used to using less and, and being a little more sensible about how they use it. So they're a perfect jurisdiction to transition into renewable energy, uh, although they haven't been without their, their problems either in the sense that too much of the renewable energy too quickly can provide the grid instability and can rise prices up faster. And even in the Netherlands, which is one of the most committed places to renewable energy, you hear some of the same pushback that we hear in North America, not quite to the same uh, degree all the time, but uh, I would say they've probably in the long run managed their their whole energy equation better for what's happening today than probably anybody else. And, and I'm sure that's a reason why your, your Gemini project is going ahead there. Uh, I wanted to get a sense from you. I, I'm aware of the size and the, the scale that a four megawatt turbine is, but I would love if you would give us a, a description of just how big a turbine that's four megawatts is and, and sort of some of the actual technology that goes into a turbine of that size. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty profound what uh, what has to get done to get the, the project built. And the, the, just to give you like the four megawatts, I guess we could do a long division here. But the um, the whole the whole project, the whole hundred uh, the whole uh, six hundred megawatts of the Gemini offshore wind project will power about seven hundred eighty five thousand households in the Netherlands. If you think about the country and the population, I, I believe is pushing. Uh, I think it's about uh, ten ten million or so. That's a substantial amount of energy for the country the uh, the turbines themselves uh, it's not they're not wickedly more complex than what you see onshore what goes underneath them the foundations that go into the floor of the north sea uh, those are probably a little more high tech although you know you're really pounding cylindrical tubes at about a 40 meter uh, diameter into the into the ocean floor with a big hammer and uh, once those foundations are in your Put, you're basically dropping the turbine into the foundation piece, and uh, you've got a two. Uh, we have 200 kilometers of cable that have to be wired from the offshore wind farm, which is about 70, 80 kilometers offshore, uh, from the offshore substation into the onshore substation, and and therein lies probably the most complicated part of the project. So it's um, it's a monster, but uh, you know it's doable. It's been done. It's there's been projects delivered on time on budget, but you have to have a very keen eye to project management, cost management, and contract management. Okay, well, I just wanted to extend a big thank you. We really appreciate you taking the time to just let us pick your brain on someone who spent a lot of time uh, in the industry and somebody who's working on some really interesting projects. So uh, I just wanted to extend a big thank you from myself and our whole network. Sure, thank you, Sean. Okay, perfect. Take care. Okay, bye. Cheers. Bye. I'm really excited for our next segment. We've got Bruce Gao, who is one of the student energy student icons on the, the show. And we're going to be talking with Bruce about his mobile application called Simply Solar. So first off, thanks, Bruce, for joining us on the show. 
Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a real honor and privilege to to be here today. So let's kick things off. Uh, what is Simply Solar? Simply Solar is um, it's a tech startup that lets people in developing countries use their mobile phones to align their solar panels for up to 40% more energy. And that lets them, uh, the children study longer, lets them take warm showers. Um, and it overall just improves their standard of, um, of life by a lot. Yeah. So it, it sounds like a very simple yet profound concept. So can you walk us through what was the inspiration? What made you wake up one day and say you wanted to co-found a tech startup focused on efficiency of solar panels? Yeah, so um, the the story of uh, Simply Solar actually, it began in a, a few years back. Um, I was on a, in a volunteer trip at a, this small orphanage in China. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was in a very, very rural location. So um, it's a eight hour train ride and then a four hour um, bus ride to the orphanage. So it's um, really far off. And so anyways, um, I was volunteering here um, as a translator. And on my first night there, I noticed that when the, when the orphans went to sleep at night, they'd always sleep in pairs. Mm-hmm. And that sort of piqued my interest because um, I was thinking, you know, there's, there's enough beds for each, each orphan to have their own. Why is this happening? And so what I actually realized is that they were sleeping in pairs in order to conserve body warmth because at night, um, the temperature in the dorm dropped to sub-zero temperatures. And Mm. so they were shivering, um, they were um, trying to sleep together to conserve body warmth. And when I found this out, I told myself, you know, this is absolutely unacceptable. I have to do something about this. And the thing is, um, I I was in high school at the time and I, I said to myself, you know, what, what can I do, right? Yeah. Um, I'm just here for two weeks. I'm going to be, be gone by then, and um, um, it, it doesn't look really good. Yeah. But I made myself a promise at that moment. I said, you know, before I leave, I'm going to do something. Mm-hmm. And so this idea sort of just churned in the back of my head for a few days. Yeah. And then it hit me. Um, I, I knew that the heating from for the orphanage was supposed to be coming from um, these solar thermal collectors on the roof and um, obviously it wasn't working out well Um, and so I realized you know what if you you just um, move the solar panel so it follows the sun throughout the sky um, as it moves and why don't you also um, make sure that's in the best direction it's possibly facing and so I did I did a bit of research on this I went off to a nearby internet cafe um, Mm -hmm. and I I was pretty big programmer then Uh, in Java, and I made a quick program that would calculate the best angle for a solar panel at any given time. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. Um, I can teach some children how to use it, and let's see how it goes. Yeah. And so I brought it back to the orphanage. I, I put it on their 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 computer over there. Um, it was running like Windows 2000 or something, <laughs> but we got it on there, and it worked. And so um, the first thing we we realized is that the, the solar panels were actually facing the wrong direction. Um, they were facing away from the equator rather than towards, which is really, really bad. Yeah. And um, the other thing was that um, we realized that as we moved this solar panel from east to west, um, something really remarkable happened. Uh, we realized that the water um, started to heat up. We realized that the dorms were warmer at night because there was more stored energy. Yeah. And it seemed like that the problem was... Um, was resolved. 
And so that was、um, basically the impetus that started Simply Solar. Because when I came back to Canada, I realized that a lot of other places in the world probably have the exact same problem. They might have the equipment necessary to、um, align their solar panels and live a better standard of life, but they're just not doing it.、Mm-hmm. And so at first, we had our, our, the desktop application I made back at the orphanage. And、um, We thought that, you know, not everybody has a laptop, not everybody has a desktop computer. So that's probably not going to be a good long term solution. And so what ended up happening is we decided to teach ourselves how to program mobile apps because we thought, you know,、um, a lot of people have Android phones, a lot of them are low end, but they, they still work. And so we said, why not give it a shot? And we ended up teaching ourselves how to program mobile apps.、Yeah. Um, we got in contact with a lot of Like minded professors, entrepreneurs. My high school computer science teacher was amazing at this. Really, really slowly, we started piecing together、um, different parts of、um, Simply Solar. And then we got a really good prototype of it. And、yeah. we ended up releasing it for free on the Android App Store. And we made an、uh, iOS application, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.、Yeah. And、um, I guess now that. Now that it's out, I think it's been out for about one and a half years or, or something like that.、Mm-hmm. Um, the last time I checked, it's now in over 136 countries.、Um, I think there's, there's over 800、um, families around the world using this daily to check their solar panels.、Um, and it's been absolutely a rewarding experience、yeah. for me. And the thing, there's a few things that I love about your story, Bruce. I think the, the first is that you really understand the human side of energy. So, Uh, energy isn't kilowatts and megawatts and gigatons and CO2. It's the idea that、uh, it can warm someone at night and it can help orphan students learn better in school because they're not colder and they're not shivering. And then I also love the fact that you sort of saw your, the problems and the challenges in front of you so, sim- so simply, and that, that even the name Simply Solar really articulates that. Uh, a basic application you can run on your desktop or on your mobile phone can improve someone's ability to access energy. And、uh, so, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is just there's a lot of times that there's people who、um, sort of come up with false excuses as to why they can't、um, take steps to tackle either climate or energy issues. And they sort of Think that the hurdles in front of them are greater than they might actually be. So, in your opinion, what were the, the things that you didn't know going into this process and how did you overcome those? Oh, man, there's, there's so many things I have absolutely, I, I don't know where to start. So, at first,、um, I was in high school, I was raised in, in a typical Chinese family.、Mm-hmm. And、um, My, my parents were very strict with my schooling, so I had to get good grades. I had to do these sets of extracurriculars. And I was almost placed onto this path of linearity where I had to start from here and end as here as a doctor or as an engineer or as a lawyer. And so that was definitely a, a, a really、um, big barrier. And I didn't really know how to get past that.、Mm-hmm. And in the end, you know, I realized、um, what my friend said. He said, you know, you don't have to see the entire staircase to take the first step. So, I had this idea、um, back at the orphanage, and I decided, you know, I'm, I'm just going to try it out. It doesn't matter if I don't, don't know how to make mobile apps, if I've never made a startup before, if I've never really done anything of, of this type. And so, one of the things that really helped me get over that hurdle is 
In my grade 12 year, I attended this program called Shad Valley.、Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard of it? Yeah. Yeah. So, Shad Valley brings together Canada's top high school students to various university campuses. And what they do is they, they, they put you in a room for, <laughs> for a month and then they make you make a fully fledged business plan about、um, like relevant issues like youth obesity or whatever. And so, anyways, I think this program is what it was sort of the tipping point that sort of unleashed my entrepreneurial spirit and told me, you know, I can give this a try. You know, there's no excuse. I know I don't really know how to do this stuff, but let's, let's give it a shot. Well, we're glad you took that step and made it happen. And、uh, we're also happy to announce that Bruce, Bruce has been selected as one of the Student Energy student icons.、Uh, and it's a new program that we've set up at Student Energy to, to recognize the amazing entrepreneurial, sort of forward thinking, and passionate students around the world that aren't. Content to sort of let、uh, the future of energy and the future of sustainability、uh, happen to them. They want to be the ones that are, that are forcing that and creating、uh, the energy future that we, we all hope for and, and all desire. And so、uh, it's a new program that we've come up with. And、uh, you can see, Bruce, the, this program is being produced in partnership with、uh, a media partner called the OGM. And、uh, you can see it at theogm.com slash student icon. There's Bruce and a number of other incredible students that are. All working around the world on different energy issues or energy challenges.、Uh, and we really encourage you to go on and, and learn more about Bruce and his story and also the other students that are working on、uh, amazing projects around the world. So、uh, I'll just wrap it up by saying thank you so much for coming in and, and sharing your story with us, Bruce.、Uh, I love sort of how simple but how profound. Uh, what you worked on、uh, and the, the impact that you've had. So, thanks again for, for coming in, and we'll have to have you back in sometime soon. Thank you very much, Sean. Take care. Next up in the studio, we've got Jenny Matchett joining us for what's quickly become one of my favorite segments on the show, This Month in Energy. So, Jenny, take it away and tell us what happened this month in the world of energy. Thanks, Sean. Some interesting energy security news. The US Navy has a goal to transition their fleets away from oil and may be on the path to solving this problem given a recent scientific discovery that converts seawater into fuel. A new innovation for nuclear. Modular and cheap underground nuclear power plants may change the future of the nuclear energy industry. Some climate change updates. We all know the famous IKEA meatballs. In the name of climate change and to specifically eliminate their meat production impact, IKEA is launching Veggie Balls. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is going to release a mitigations plan that will help the world combat the worst effects of climate change. Energy Access News Former U.S. President Jimmy Carter signed a letter last month to President Obama urging him to reject the Keystone XL pipeline. The Canadian Prime Minister's office retaliated with some questionable facts about the U.S. Canadian relationship during the 1979 energy crisis. The geopolitical unease in Ukraine has driven the price of oil past $104 a barrel. And in China, they're getting quite serious about coal plant shutdowns. The Chinese Energy Administration announced last month that the country will close 1,725 small scale coal mines over the course of 2014. Alternative energy highlights The German government approved legislation for the nation's energy plan that will generate more than 40% of its energy needs through renewable resources by 2025. In India, government backed green bonds will hopefully lower the cost of renewable power by 25%. And Google has recently put $100 million into a rooftop solar play. And that wraps up this month in energy for April 2014. Thanks, Jenny.
next segment on the show is going to be a shameless plug for one of Student Energy's most exciting upcoming programs. So I'm excited to invite Julia Kabuma, our Global Events Manager, into the studio to discuss the upcoming Regional Student Energy Summits. So Julia, kick us off and just give us an overview of what are the Student Energy Regional Energy Summits. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. The Regional Student Energy Summits are two-day conferences, which will bring together 1,500 students from five, in five different countries around the world, where they'll discuss, tackle, and shape the future of energy. They're based off of the International Student Energy Summit, and they're the chance to connect with student leaders and commit to solving global energy challenges. And they will go down around the world on the 19th and 20th of June, 2014. Perfect. And what are some of the highlights of the various summits going on and and where are they all taking place? The summits are taking place on five different continents. In North America, the event will take place in New York City, where the conference will be the official student event of the New York Energy Week. And the opening ceremonies will take place at the UN headquarters in New York City. In Europe, uh, one of their program highlights is that there will be a panel discussion on the future of shale gas in Europe, as well their social events, one of them will take place in a castle. In Asia, we're glad to be partnering with the Chinese Ministry of Environmental Protection for the event, which will take place in Beijing. What's interesting, the Chinese Ministry of Environmental Protection recently revised their environmental protection law for the first time since it was implemented 25 years ago. And so this will enable tools for authorities to take stronger actions against pollution and help ensure that information about environmental monitoring is made public. In Latin America, the event will take place in Mexico City, Mexico. And as a founding partner, the event has partnered with the Secretariat of Energy in Mexico. And they will be hosting an innovation gem on the ways that Latin American students can tackle some of the largest issues facing the region. And finally, in Africa, the event will take place in Cape Town, South Africa, hosted with the Cape Peninsula University of Technology. And this institution is making waves as in January, they will open a 100 million rand South African Renewable Energy Technology Center. And across all of the summits, one major highlight is that there will be speakers from the United Nations Sustainable Energy for All initiative. Perfect. Thanks, Julia. So if uh, students or participants want to learn more, uh, how can they find out more or sign up? So everything about the Regional Student Energy Summits is online. So you can point your browsers to www.studentenergysummits.com. As well, we are all over Facebook. There is a page for each of the regions. So if you search student energy, either Asia, student energy, Europe, Africa, so on and so forth, you will find the pages for each of the summits. Perfect. And which of the summits are you going to be attending? I am so excited to say that I will be joining the Latin American team in Mexico City in June. Perfect. Thanks for coming in, Julia. With that, we come to a close on another month's episode of Energy Voices on CGSW 90.9 FM. Energy Voices is produced by Mark Affeld and Sean Collins with contributions from Julia Kabuma and Jennifer Matches. To listen to any previous episode of Energy Voices, visit cjsw.com 
or see the podcasts uploaded at bit.ly slash energyvoices. Don't forget to subscribe in iTunes and share your thoughts on Facebook and on Twitter using hashtag energyvoices. <laughs>